Happy Hauntings, horror fans, and welcome to this week's episode of Megan's Murder Movies. I'm your host, Megan, and as you can see from the title, this week we are going to do the first in the Final Destination franchise, one of my go-to franchises. Uh, Love the Final Destination films. Very happy to be back. I just got back from vacation on... What is today? I'm recording this on Thursday. I got back from vacation Sunday evening. Uh, The jet lag was a little difficult to get through. I'm feeling good today. Got a good night's sleep. Um, But yeah, the jet lag I didn't think was going to hit me as bad, but this should be going up Friday like normal. So fingers crossed we will have all of that like normal. This is going to be episode four of four for my four weeks on, two weeks off. Um, Then I'll be kind of spending the next two weeks prepping episodes getting ready for May. I have a really fun lineup for May, in my opinion. Um, Got some fun stuff for Mother's Day, and then I'm also going to do Midsommar, the Ari Aster film with Florence Pugh, and I'm very, very excited about that because a huge Ari Aster and Florence Pugh fan, and Midsommar is one of my my go-tos, even though it's very, very long, uh, but it doesn't feel as long as it actually is. But that's not what we're talking about this week. This week, we're talking about Final Destination, I actually planned to film this before I went on vacation, and then I I realized that I was going to, I left on Monday um, to start my vacation, and I was planning on filming it on Sunday, and I was like, probably not the best uh, movie to talk about just before I'm going to be sitting on a plane for over 24 hours, so we waited till we got back. I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. So without further ado, we can jump into Final Destination with a summary. So the film revolves around a group of teenagers who end up cheating death by avoiding a plane crash when one of them has a premonition of their deaths. But soon after their escape, they begin dying off one by one in mysterious freak accidents. This one is so good. I don't think this one is my favorite of the entire franchise. I think, which one is it? It's the roller coaster one. I think it's three. Final Destination 3, yeah, with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. That one is so good. I could watch that one all the time. I remember, I think I was in high school and they used to play it on like Stars or whatever. I don't know. They probably would play Final Destination 3 like once or twice a week and I watched it all the time. Whenever it was on TV, I watched that one. Um, But this one's super great, kicks off everything. I loved what they did with this. I don't remember the first time that I watched this one. I remember renting it from like Blockbuster. So then I kind of want to start a little new uh, segment on the podcast. And I want to talk about like the Rotten Tomato scores for the films that I do. Because I was talking with my friends and so many of the films that I've done. And of course, it's my podcast. So of course, I'm going to pick films that I really like to do first as opposed to spending my time watching movies that like aren't my favorite but as I've been editing things I'm realizing that I think in every single episode I'm like this is one of my favorite movies and I'm like we're on episode 41 now this is episode 41 I can't have I can't have a hundred thousand favorite movies I guess I can um but so we I kind of wanted to talk about like the Rotten Tomatoes for each film that I do going forward and kind of whether or not I agree on the critic score or the audience score um so for final destination the 2000 the original film the critics gave it 35 percent which i think is so sad because i think it was such a fret like 2000 was such a fresh take on horror or thriller absolutely loved it i don't know how 
it's so low. But then again, horror movies don't really do that well in the eyes of critics unless like they're a, they're a horror review um, critic. But I think it's great. It has a 68 for the audience score, which I think is fairly good. Um, you know, so that's like a 3.7 out of 5. I probably would give this, you know, roughly a 4 out of out of 5 film. Um, of course, it's not the most amazing thing, but it's, it's good. I think it's fresh. I think it's a fun take. I love, you know, the kills that they do in the Final Destination films and this one, you know, kicking everything off. I guess I would agree with that. I would probably, if I had to rate this one out of 100... I would probably give it like a 75. So 68, I guess, isn't too far off of that. Um, but just kind of in reference to me always saying, oh, yeah, this is one of my favorite movies. And, you know, there's when I get to episode 100, it's going to be hard to to fit all of those into one of my favorite films. But this is one that I will watch often, um, especially like if I see it on TV or on streaming, like I'll definitely go for it. So then we can jump into the cast, but one fun fact that we're going to do right off the top is that most characters in the film are named after filmmakers or stars from black and white horror films. So Terry Chaney was named after Lon Chaney, Todd Wagner after director George Wagner, Alex Browning after director Todd Browning, Larry Murnau after director F.W. Murnau, who directed the 1922 Nosferatu, Agent Shrek after Max Shrek, who starred in Nosferatu in 1922. Um, Blake Dreyer after Carl Theodore Dreyer, who directed Vampire in 1932. Howard Siegel after director Don Siegel, who directed Dirty Harry in 1971. And then Billy Hitchcock after Alfred Hitchcock. And then Valerie Luton after horror film producer Val Luton. So I thought that was kind of a fun fact to kick off the top before we jump into the cast. And we're going to open up our cast breakdown with the character of Alex Browning, who is kind of our main guy throughout the film, and he is played by Devin Sawa. Devin is a Canadian actor. He began acting when he was a teenager and appeared in several films in the 1990s, including Little Giants, Casper, Now and Then, Wild America, Idle Hands, and Final Destination. He also played the title character of the Eminem music video Stan and starred as Owen Elliott in the CW action spy drama series Nikita. Fun fact, I don't know if this is a fun fact, this is just an interesting fact in my life, but about a year ago, and I, so I work from home, I don't have to go out and do things very often, I'm not in the car very often, if I am, it's, you know, going to the grocery store, running a quick errand, especially before I moved, like, everything that I needed was within a 20 minute drive, so I really wasn't in my car for very long, and nine times out of ten, I would kind of connect my phone to listen to a podcast or something that I'd been listening to throughout the day. But every once in a while, I would just let the radio play, especially if I was only going five to ten minutes from the house. And there was probably a six to nine month period where I heard the song Stan by Eminem on the radio once a week. And this, like, once a week in terms of me only having to go places maybe twice a week. So f- like about 50% of the time that I had to be in the car, if I chose to listen to the radio, there's like a 50% chance that Stan was going to start playing or was playing when I got in the car. And it was the weirdest thing. Like at first I was like, oh, like this is a jam. Like, you know, Stan's such a good song. And then it kept happening. And I remember I had two friends come to visit me um, for like a long weekend. And I told them, I was like, I, you know, I swear to God, 
I hear this song come on so often. And I looked it up like it's not an anniversary year for the song. Like there, there's really no reason. I mean, it's a good song, but there's no reason why so many radio stations should be playing Stan so often. You know, I only switched between two or three radio stations. And then as they were visiting me in the three days, I think that they were with me, the four days they were with me, I think we heard Stan three times when we were like driving around running errands and doing stuff around town. And they were like, what the heck is happening? It was so weird. So now anytime I think of that song, like, I don't know what the universe was trying to tell me with that. Um, But yeah, just a a fun little odd thing that happened in my life for about six to nine months where that song seemed to just follow me everywhere. It was a very weird, very weird time. All right, then we will move on to the character of Clear Rivers, who is played by Allie Lartner. Allie's an American actress and model. She portrayed fictional model Allegra Coleman in the 1996 Esquire magazine hoax and took on guest roles on several television shows in the 1990s. She made her film debut in Varsity Blues in 1999 which was followed by the horror film House on Haunted Hill, also in 1999. Her role as Claire Rivers in the first two films of the Final Destination franchise earned her a reputation as a scream queen. Lartner plays supporting roles in the comedy Legally Blonde in 2001 and the romantic comedy A Lot Like Love in 2005. She led the Bollywood movie Marigold in 2007, and she was in the thriller Obsessed in 2009. She played the dual roles of Nikki Sanders and Tracy Sturgis on the NBC science fiction drama Heroes from 2006 to 2010 and achieved wider recognition for her portrayal of video game heroine Claire Redfield in the Resident Evil Extinction 2007, Resident Evil Afterlife 2010, and Resident Evil The Final Chapter in 2016. Then we'll move on to the role of Carter Horton, who's played by Kerr Smith. Kerr is an American actor known for playing Jack McPhee on the Warner Brothers drama series Jocelyn's Creek, Kyle Brody in the Warner Brothers supernatural drama Charmed, Robert in Freeform's The Fosters, and Axel Palmer in My Bloody Valentine 3D. He's also known for portraying Carter, of course, in Final Destination, and then he also starred in the movie Where Hope Grows in 2014. Then we will move on to Valerie Luton, who is a teacher at the high school where all of these kids attend, and Valerie is played by Kristen Cloak. Kristen's an American actress, and she was in the main cast of Space Above and Beyond from 1995 to 1996, and she has acted in several small parts in other TV series. She's known for her role as playing Miss Luton in Final Destination and as Lee Colvin in the slasher film Back Christmas in 2006. She frequently appears in productions written, produced, or directed by her husband, Glenn Morgan. Then we will talk about Agent Wine, who's played by Daniel Roebuck. Daniel's an American actor and writer, best known for roles including Deputy Marshal Robert Biggs in The Fugitive and its spinoff U.S. Marshals Jay Leno in The Late Shift and Dr. Leslie Arts in Lost, as well as numerous Rob Zombie and Don Carcerelli films. He's also known for his role as Cliff Lewis, Ben Matlock's private investigator on Matlock from 1992 until 1995. Then we have the role of Agent Shrek, who is played by Roger Guinevere-Smith. In film school, Smith has collaborated with Spike Lee on several works. He appeared in films such as School Days, Do the Right Thing, King of New York, Panther, Malcolm X, Poetic Justice, Get on the Bus, Eve's Bayou, He Got Game, and Summer of Sam. During the 1990s, he had a reoccurring role on A Different World. In 1996, he starred in the self-written and produced A Huey P. Newton Story, a one-man theater performance based on the life of the Black Panther Party founder, Huey P. Newton. 
Smith received an Obie Award, and a performance was later filmed by Spike Lee and released in 2001. In addition to his performances in major studio productions, Smith continues to work in and support independent film projects. In 2003, he has had starring roles in the Steven Soderbergh, George Clooney TV series K Street on HBO. Also in 2003, Smith read in the HBO documentary Unchained Memories, readings from the slave narratives, the film based on interviews conducted by the WPA in the 1930s with formerly enslaved African Americans, is a compilation of slave narratives with actors emulating the original conversations with the interviewer. Smith was also the voice of Bowder in the video game Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic to the Sith Lords. He portrayed a corrupt detective in the martial arts slash crime film Fists of the Warrior alongside Ho Jung Pak and Cheryl Finn. Smith starred with Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum in the 1992 film Deep Cover. He also played a villain in All About the Benjamins in 2002 with Ice Cube. In 2000, he portrayed Agent Shrek, of course, in Final Destination. In 2006, he played the main villain in the straight-to-video actioneer Mercenary for Justice opposite Steven Seagal. Smith was in the 2007 American Gangster with Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe, in which he played the role of Nate. Most recently, he played the role of Isaiah in the 2006 film The Birth of a Nation, a film about the life of Nat Turner. Smith also had a reoccurring role on the HBO series Oz. Smith portrayed American black leader Booker T. Washington in the 2020 Netflix miniseries Self-Made, based on the life of Madam C.J. Walker. Then we will move on to Todd Wagoner, who is played by Chad E. Danella. Chad attended the arts work drama program in which he participated in such plays as Opus Rex, Waiting for Godot, and the collected works of Billy the Kid. He performed at Toronto's Factory Theatre and the Markham Theatre. He also played bass for a time in a band called D-A-E-V-E. He has appeared in several movies, such as Final Destination, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Disturbing Behavior. In addition to his roles on film, he also obtained many parts on television, appearing in shows like The X-Files, Smallville, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, NCIS, Monk, and Lost. In many of his roles, he's portrayed teenagers and young men undergoing a crisis. Danella had a role as Officer Gibson in Saw 3D as well. Then we'll move to the character of Billy Hitchcock, who's played by Sean William Scott. Sean's an American actor known for his role as Steve Stifler in the American Pie franchise, also for his role as Doug Glatt in both Goon and Goon, Last of the Enforcers. He has also appeared in the films Dude, Where's My Car, Road Trip, Evolution, The Dukes of Hazzard, Mr. Woodcock, and Role Models. He has voiced Crash in four Ice Age animated feature films, and two Ice Age television specials. He portrayed former CIA operative Wesley Cole in Fox's crime drama television series Lethal Weapon from 2018 to 2019. Then we will move on to Tony Todd, who we've talked about on the podcast before, and he plays the role of William Bloodsworth. So like we've mentioned in a couple of the past episodes, Tony Todd's an American actor who made his debut as Sergeant Warren in the film Platoon. He portrayed Kern in the television series Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He achieved stardom for his role as Ben in the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead and the title character in the four films of the Candyman franchise. And then he starred in Dan in The Man from Earth and voiced the Fallen in Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. 
He also voiced Darkseid in the DC animated movie universe, Zoom in The Flash, and Venom in the upcoming Spider-Man 2 game that's supposed to release this year. And then we'll chat about Terry Chaney, who is played by Amanda Detmer. Amanda's an American actress, and she made her big screen debut playing Miss Minneapolis in 1999 comedy film Drop Dead Gorgeous, and later had a supporting role in Final Destination. In the early 2000s, she had starring roles in comedy films, including Boys and Girls, Saving Silverman, The Majestic, Kiss the Bride, uh, and she's had starring roles in short-lived television series such as AUSA and What About Brian? And then we will talk about George Wagner, who's played by Brendan Furr. Brendan's a Canadian film and television actor, perhaps best known for portraying Michael Gurren in the Warner Brothers television series Roswell, and for portraying lab tech Dan Cooper in CSI Miami. In 2008, he won a Gemini Award for Hottest Canadian Male TV Actor, and he played Jared Booth on the Fox television series Bones. Then we will chat about Larry Murano, who's played by Forbes Agnes, and Larry is another teacher at the school where the kids attend. Uh, So he's known for Final Destination, Agent Cody Banks, and R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour. Then we will chat about Krista, who is played by Lisa Marie Couric. Lisa is a Canadian actress and got her first theatrical movie role as Linda Rose in Ronnie and Julie in 1997 at 16 years old. After that, she got her first role, like starring role, as Krista in Final Destination. She was 18 years old, but turning 19 in the summer of 1999. She also starred in Smallville in 2001 as Mary the Cheerleader. Since then, she has uh, like a candy and party decoration shop with her older sister in Canada, uh, and she also appears in numerous other productions since Final Destination and Smallville. Then we'll chat about Blake, who is played by Christine Chaitlin. Christine's a Canadian film and television actress. She had a reoccurring role on The Collector as Taylor, and originally an art student in Vancouver. She tried acting as a hobby and quickly gained roles in 48 days and 40 nights and 3,000 miles to Graceland. Then the last character that we're going to talk about is Mark Holden, who is the co-pilot of the flight. And Mark's a British-born Canadian actor of Nigerian descent who works for film, television, theater, and voice. He's worked extensively throughout Canada, UK, Europe, and South Africa. He's best known for playing CIA handler John Lynn in the Fox Network's group television series Deep State and playing James Morse on the stage in the original London cast of Pretty Woman the Musical at the Savoy Theatre on West End. Most recently, his voice can be heard playing Dr. Paradox in the 2020 video game Cyberpunk 2077, and then he is also going to be voicing Nicholas in Dying Light to Stay Human. And that wraps up our cast breakdown for kind of our, our main players in Final Destination. So we can jump into our fun facts. So the story which originally supposed to be a concept for an episode of the X-Files, which was inspired by Soul Survivor. In the movie, a woman who was the sole survivor of a plane crash starts to be haunted by dead people that death uses temporarily as vessels trying to kill her to correct its plan um, and killing anyone who was suspect about it. So much of the news footage shown is actual footage from the July 1996 explosion and crash of the TWA Flight 800 off Long Island, New York. And then at around 17 minutes, we see Miss Luton chatting with the co-pilot to try and convince him to let one of 
the teachers, either herself or Larry, back on the plane um, with the rest of the students, and that scene was completely improvised. So not only does this film borrow footage of the crash, but it borrows another thing as well. The July 17, 1986 flight was carrying a high school French club. It exploded suddenly and was investigated for possible deliberate act causing the accident. First a bomb, then a surface-to-air missile. Um, as with the film, it was ultimately decided that the crash was the result of a mechanical fel- failure. The music played throughout the film was by John Denver, a musician who died in a plane crash. At around one hour, the scene where Carter elbows Billy in the car was added in because on the day of shooting, Sean William Scott had a sore lip to hide it. The makeup team added blood, and the end result was of Carter elbowing Billy. The numerous appearances of 180 in the film refer to the film's original title of Flight 180. However, New Line decided to rename the film to Final Destination uh, through fear of confusion for other films like Air Force One or Con Air. In the film, Todd's name is spelled with one D instead of the traditional spelling, which has two, and in German, Todd with one D means death. Claire's cabin is the same cabin seen in Lake Placid in 1999. The original casting choices for Alex and Claire were Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. Both actors would later star in San Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. The Chinese title for the film translates as The Death God Comes. Uh, and this features the shortest opening disaster in the film series as the plane crash only lasts about two minutes. When the students are boarding the airplane, Alex looks down from the jetway and sees a luggage cart with a number 666 on it. 666, of course, is the number associated not only with tragedy, um, disgrace, or misfortune, but evil and the devil. Considering his extensive knowledge of death's design and how it works, many Final Destination fans have theorized that William Bloodworth is a human personification of death, or at least some kind of representation of death. However, both Tony Tom himself and the producers have denied this being true, but I think it's kind of a fun little theory uh, just to think about. While Alex is sitting in his bedroom reading a magazine, an owl lands on a tree branch outside the window, and in many cultures, owls are viewed as omens of death. In South Korea, the film is simply titled Destination. Uh, so I think I thought this was really interesting when I was doing research for the film. So five historical persons have had similar experiences to the concept of premonitions and cheating death. That is the theme for the whole entire franchise. So the first one we'll chat about is Alfred G. Vanderbilt, an aristocrat who had a ticket to board the ill-fated ocean liner Titanic in 1912, but he canceled his trip. Three years later, in 1915, he perished in the sinking of the Lithuania. And there's an urban legend that Stoker named Frank Lucas Towers, who survived all three sinking ocean liners, the Titanic, the Lithuania, and the Empress of Ireland in 1914. Winston Churchill said that one of his frequent car rides in London in World War I, an inner voice told him to avoid sitting in his usual seat in his car one day, and thus he avoided death when a bomb dropped next to the side of the car. William T. Stead, a psychic who perished in the sinking of the Titanic, was also rumored to have had premonitions. Uh, So in the first draft of the film, the survivors that get off the plane were supposed to be seven strangers, but due to the popularity of teen slashers at the time, the survivors were changed to high school students. The first theatrical release teen horror film to not feature a corporal murderer Other theatrical-released horror films to also not feature a visible murderer killing off teenagers is Ouija, Unfriended, and Truth or Dare, all of which are Jason Blum-produced Blumhouse features. 
So at around 49 minutes, there's a scene where both Claire and Alex are putting Alka-Seltzer in water and drinking. Um, it kind of feels random and a little bit disconnected at first, um, but that was later added and extended because test audiences were still recovering from the shock of seeing Terry get hit by the bus. And so that that scene happens. She gets hit by the bus. We see them kind of with blood on their face, and then it jumps to um, each of them in their own homes drinking Alka-Seltzer water. Uh, so the original plan was to have death as a much more obvious entity in the film as it was in Todd's death, with Todd seeing the shadow in the mirror and the water running back into the toilet to cover its tracks. And then after Todd's death, it was decided to have death look like rare accidents. Uh, this way to kill the Flight 180 survivors, trace tribute to the omen, and it rare accidents this happen around Robert Thorne and his son Damien. In the scene where the knife impales Miss Luton, actress Kristen was put under a fake wooden floor with a silicone body on top, and this was so the knife could actually impale the character, you know, the fake dummy body, without injuring the actor. So the bus sequence from Alex and Claire talking about William Bloodworth to Terry being hit by the bus took a total of three days to shoot. Alex was almost killed seven times. He was almost run over by a train, almost electrocuted while saving Claire, nearly killed in an explosion, almost impaled in the face by blunt branches, almost drowned after a tree fell on him in a puddle, and almost run over by a bus, and then again he was almost crushed by a neon sign. During the opening credits, two of the deaths in the film are foreshadowed. There is a hanging doll and a picture of a guillotine in a book. Todd foreshadows his own death while aboard the plane after Christina Marsh and Blake Dreher ask Alex whether or not he'd be willing to switch. Todd makes a choking and hanging motion toward Alex. In Todd's death scene, the shot of the water leaking was played forward as it came out. The footage was simply rode back to give the effect that it was sucked back under the toilet. The song Into the Void by Nine Inch Nails is playing on Carter's car radio right before Terry's death. The song contains the words Final Destination. And then our body count is five, kind of, um, but if you're not including the initial plane crash. So five that we see, and then of course there's 287 passengers on flight 180 who didn't make it off the plane. So now that we have met the cast, we know some fun facts about the film, we can get into our scene by scene breakdown. We open on a thunderstorm. We get our opening credits while we pan through what looks like someone's house. We see some toys. We see a fan going, not a ceiling fan, but like a little table or desk fan. We hold on the fan for a while, and then we pan over to the bed. We see a passport, a boarding pass is lying on the bed, and we see on the boarding pass it says Flight 180 to France. We see someone pick up a book about France, like it looks kind of like a tour guide book, you know, like sites to see, that sort of thing. We're in that person's bedroom, and we see the fan blow open a book and we get pictures about the French Revolution. We see a couple more images of pages in the book as it's being flipped through. And as the fan is blowing these pages open and the pages are fluttering through, we see images and words depicting death. Now we see a woman come into her son's room. We learn our main character's name is Alex and this is his mother. She tells him that his Friend's dad, Will, is going to be there in the morning to pick him up, and he needs to be ready. And then they talk about the flights, and we learn that he's taking his father's luggage, and his mother goes to rip off, like, the 
checked luggage tag from the last time his father traveled. And he's like, no, 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 you can't rip that off. Like, it's it's a superstition thing. Um, you know, it, it means that the flight will get there safely if the old tag is on it because, you know, the old flight that connects to that tag, you know, was successful and, and landed and everything was safe. So we can't take off the tag. And she kind of laughs. She's like, oh, like, that's, you know, what kind of superstition is that? And rips the tag off. Then as they continue talking, we learn that this is a senior trip to Paris that he's going on. They're going to be there for 10 days. And Alex's dad says to live it up because he's got his whole life ahead of him. Alex gives his dad a little bit of a worried look and we see Alex now sleeping in his bed. We see more stuff around his bedroom. He's got this little figurine of an airplane and then this kind of wind starts blowing around his room and we see things move around like the fan is blowing, but we see that the fan is actually turned off right now. We hear a woman call Alex's name and he wakes up, but no one is there. He rolls over in bed and it's currently 1 a.m., but we see that the zero kind of is on the fritz and then it shows 1 80 on the clock. Now it's morning. Everyone is arriving at the airport. We see some more of our cast. We meet Carter and Clear. The students are saying goodbye to their parents and Todd and his brother are really good friends of Alex's and the, and the three of them seem very close and Todd's father even tells Alex to keep an eye on both of them and make sure that they're safe. He says that he will. It seems like they're probably very close family friends. The boys have probably been friends most of their lives growing up. Now we see all the students going to the airport. We see two teachers are with them, one of them being a male teacher, whom I'm guessing is the French teacher at the school because he seems very, very fluent, and then the female teacher as well. Alex gets handed a pamphlet talking about death and the afterlife. Now we see Alex checking in, and he chats with the gal at the front desk while he's checking his bag. We see the old school departure boards. They used to like flip through the times. They're flipping. It catches Alex's attention. It's a really cool detail. Um just because it's like an old tech thing. Now they just have all the monitor screens that, you know, they're just televisions basically. Um, But the old flip ones I thought were really cool. And then we see the flight attendant or the desk worker for the airline putting the luggage tag on Alex's bag. And it says final destination is Paris. And she tells Alex that his departure time is the same as his birthday. So the departure time is 925 and his birthday is September 25th. Now all of the students are on their way to their gate. We see some of the students sit down. Clear sits down. She drops her book. Alex picks it up and hands it to her, and it's open to a page talking about Princess Diana and her death. Alex goes up to a window. He's looking out at the plane, and his friend Todd comes up and says that they should go to the bathroom and try and take a shit. And Alex is like, oh, like, I'm, I'm fine. I don't really have to go. And Todd's like, no, listen, I have a whole plan and a whole, like, thought process. It's a seven-hour flight, and the bathrooms are tiny. If you go in and you stink up the bathroom, and Krista or Blake go in after you, you do not want to be associated with their reaction to the smell if you want to have any chance with them at all. you got to make sure your system is clear, you know. And, I mean, I guess from there, uh, where, they're, where they're at in the moment, I guess it's not, like, the worst plan or idea. You definitely don't want to be associated with stinking up the airplane bathroom. Um I guess I get where Todd's coming from. It's kind of a, just a silly thing. But next we see Todd and Alex in the bathroom. It's a really interesting like aerial shot uh, above the stalls. And we see each of them in a stall trying to poop before their flight. While they're in the bathroom, a John Denver song comes on and Alex kind of says to himself that 
John Denver died in a plane crash. And then we hear an overhead announcement that their flight is getting ready to start boarding. Always an exciting time. Their teacher, Miss Luton, the female teacher, is looking for the student Billy. She can't seem to find him. Next, we go over to Krista and Blake walking down the jetway, and Alex, Todd, and his brother George are next kind of in line to board the plane. They're waiting to get on the plane, kind of in the little jet bridge area, and Alex looks out one of the little windows, and we see that it has started to rain, and there is also thunder and lightning. Alex goes to get on the plane, and he looks down in between the jetway and the plane door. You know, there's usually like a little a gap, and it always makes me think of London, and they're like, mind the gap between the train and the platform. Like, don't mind the gap between the jetway and the airplane. Um, anyway... <laughs> And as he's looking down this little gap, there's a little cart that drives underneath, and it says 666 on the cart. Uh, It's probably one of the little carts that they would use to put the luggage on the plane. Alex, George, and Todd get on the plane, and they see a baby crying, and George says, thank God, because God would be fucked up to take this plane down. They also pass someone with physical disabilities, and George again says the same thing. He's like, yeah, God would be really fucked up if he took this plane down. Todd notices that his seat is next to either Krista or Blake, and he wants to sit next to either one of them to try and, you know, flirt and be, you know, get in the, you know, get in good with the, the pretty girls. However, Krista and Blake want to sit next to each other, so they're trying to convince Todd to switch seats with them. He's saying, nope. He's like, I need to be closer to the bathroom. Like, I've got, like, you know irritable bowel syndrome or he like makes up this thing no he says he has is it kidney stones he says he has something a urinary tract he says he's a urinary tract infection that's what it is he's like i need to be close to the bathroom because i have a urinary tract infection um and so i'm not going to switch you seats because either chris or blake has a seat closer to the end of the plane which that always makes me laugh because i was like pretty much in all planes there's like a bathroom in the middle and then one at the very end so he would have been closer but of course that's not why he's actually refusing to switch seats. So he says no, and Krista and Blake are like, okay, fine, well, we're going to go ask Alex then. I'm going to go see if Alex will switch seats with them so that they can sit next to each other. They go to the back of the plane where Alex is sitting, and they ask him if he'll be willing to switch seats. He gives in and says yes, but while they're talking with him, we see Todd up in his seat, and he's, like, motioning to Alex, don't do it, I'll kill you, I'll kill myself, like, do not switch seats with them. Um, but Alex does anyway. And he gets to go sit next to his friend Todd. So, like, why not? Especially, like, it's like a seven-hour flight. That's not even that bad. Oh, that's not even that bad. When I went to the Maldives on vacation a couple weeks ago, we had a 16-hour, well, like, 15-hour flight from LAX to Qatar. Then we had, like, a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour flight from Qatar to the Maldives. Then we had an hour hopper flight from the main island to the closest island that we were staying to. And then we had like a 20 minute boat ride uh, to the resort. That was a fucking long day. I, when I, I, um, I studied abroad in London, uh, lived there for about two years on and off. And I've done, I don't know, I've done the like West Coast to London. I think upwards when I did the math of like 15 times in the course of three years, I, I had done that back and forth. Um, so I got used to like 12, 14 hour flights, no big deal. Being able, like the East Coast is bananas, how lucky it is. Like you can get to London in like six and a half hours. So like their seven hour flight is not even gonna be anything too wild, thankfully. 
So Alex goes up, goes to sit by Todd. Todd's a little frustrated with him. And when he goes, he's basically going to sit now in the window seat. Todd's in the middle seat. And he goes to put his tray table up because it was down. And it falls down again. He goes to put it back up. And the little, like, lever thing, you know, you, like, push it down so it, like, catches to hold the tray tables up. It falls off, like, the little lever piece um, so that the tray table won't stay up. Alex puts on the flight attendant light to, like, let them know that this is broken. And then we see Billy get on the plane. He's going to his seat as he's trying to... Um, and he, they ended up putting him kind of on the wrong side of the plane. So when you're on a big plane like that, you know, you'll give the first, you know, that main flight attendant who's by the door when you come in, you'll let them look at your ticket and usually they'll tell you, oh, you'll take this first aisle if you're in rows like A through D. And if you're in, or in, not in rows, if you're in seats A through D. And if you're in seats like E through G or whatever it is, or E through h sometimes depending on the flight you know if there's three seats in the middle or if there's two um but if you're on like that latter half of seats then you'll go across the plane quote unquote to that second aisle down so long story short billy is on that second aisle but he actually should have been sent down the first aisle that he would have come to so he has to cross through the like three or four people in the middle part of the plane to get to where his seat is So he's trying to figure out which aisle he wants to take to get across to where his seat is. Alex is now looking like he's panicking a little bit. He seems like he's on edge. A flight attendant doesn't come, partly because they're not going to be able to get to him. And they're, you know, they're getting everything ready for takeoff, making sure people are comfortable in their seats, all of those types of things. We see Clear get on the plane. She's seated right behind Alex. They're now preparing for takeoff. Billy was able to get to his seat. Everything's good to go. They close the doors. So everyone is putting on their seatbelts. The plane starts, you know, pushing back from the gate and, you know, kind of shakes a little bit. And so everyone seems a little bit shocked for that. Um, And then we see the plane driving across the tarmac to get to the runway. Alex looks out the window and he's trying to take deep breaths. The lights are flickering a little bit, which is, again, all pretty normal stuff. He closes his eyes and just looks like he's trying to relax himself as they get ready for takeoff. I'm the same way. I like I've flown so often. I still get a little nervous. I guess is maybe the right word at takeoff and landing. So I always like try to have music going um, so that there's nothing interrupted. Like I always hate like if my headphones are dead or I don't have headphones or something. So I'm like trying to watch a movie or listen to music, and then the flight attendants or the the captain keeps getting on to be like, okay, we're getting ready for takeoff, but and it's just like keeps interrupting like the music or whatever that I'm trying to calm myself down with. So. Um, I, I get that, you know, having having that little bit of nervousness and that little. So like I said, he's trying to relax himself. They take off. Everything seems fine for a moment. And their male French teacher, Larry, has everyone put their arms in the air because they're excited. Um, he like kind of says it to the group of students, but then other people on the plane join in. They're cheering. They're clapping. They're laughing. Seems like a good time. Alex looks like he's going to be sick, though. Now we get this rumbling, they hit some turbulence as they're taking off, things are shaking really bad, people are looking scared, the flight attendants are telling everyone it's fine, everything's good, people look like they're bracing for whatever might happen, and then things even out, everything seems calm for a moment, not sure what it's normally like out of that airport, but I know some airports can, you know, their takeoffs can be a little more rocky than others, I know London Heathrow, um, 
is usually pretty, I don't want to say difficult, but can be really windy for landings a lot of the time because, you know, the UK is just, it's just an island. Um, so that can be really hard. The I think those are probably the, the only times I felt like I was actually going to to be sick on a plane was there were two times landing at Heathrow of all the times I've landed at Heathrow where it was a rough, like, is descent and landing because of the wind. So I know some of those um, East Coast ones can be, you know, New Jersey, um, New York, that sort of stuff can be a little rough on takeoff, I think, because of, you know, wind, depending on what it's like. So the flight attendants are probably used to it if they fly out of the airport a lot. They're telling everyone to calm down. Everything's good. No big deal. And things level off. People seem a lot calmer. Todd and Alex look at one another and people, you know, the whole plane seems to relax. And then the shaking and turbulence starts much more intense. We see the overhead bins open. Bags are falling out of the overhead bins. People are grabbing onto one another. Billy is eating this container of Whoppers and like drops the whole box. So now there's Whoppers all over the floor. People start screaming. It looks terrifying. Like, I've only been on one flight with super bad turbulence, and it was from Greece to Rome, and that was the longest. Like, I think it was only like a two-hour flight or an hour and a half, but I was like, I'm pretty sure I was like white-knuckling the uh, the handles the whole time because it, I mean, it was like a smaller plane, you know, it was like two, I think, I don't think there's anyone in the middle. I think it was two, two seats on the left, two seats on the right, so just like A through D, and it felt like there were moments where it just felt like we were going to fall right out of the sky because we just hit something and it just drop us. And then it'd be fine. And then it would just. And so I, I'm pretty sure I was like white knuckling the uh, the arborist the entire time for that flight. It was that was probably the scariest flight I've ever been on. But anyway, um, the flight has really, really bad turbulence right now. Billy drops his whoppers. Everyone looks terrified. Like, however they did this, I'm guessing they had, like, a huge, you know, set built. But the way it's shaking is totally terrifying. The oxygen masks come down. People are trying to put them on the best they can. And we see, and now we are kind of in Alex's point of view. We can see what he's seeing out the window. It looks like the plane is totally losing control. Like, just, yeah, not good. Electrical panels open up, a fire starts, and then one part of the plane up toward the front, like near the door where you enter, um, just rips open, just totally tears, starts sucking seats out of the airplane. Miss Luton, the teacher, is reaching out for one of her students who's getting ready to fly out. She's unable to grab the girl. The girl is sucked out of the airplane. We see other people get sucked out of the plane. Everyone who was able to put their masks on has, you know, the little oxygen masks on. And then the whole plane erupts into flames. We see Alex's face burn up. And then we cut back to Alex in his original seat at the back of the plane, talking with Krista and Blake. And they're asking him to switch seats. He is covered in sweat. He looks terrified. He looks like he's going to be sick. He gets out of his seat, runs to Todd. He checks the tray table, and the same thing happens. The little handle pops right out. The flight attendant comes up and asks if there's a problem, and Alex very calmly says, this plane's going to fucking explode. Not calm at all. Uh, of course, you know, the flight attendant asks if this is a joke. Alex swears it's not a joke. He's screaming. He's yelling. Miss Luton is out of her seat. And Billy, at this point, has entered the plane like we saw in the premonition. And he's kind of stuck in the middle of all this. Like, he can't 
get through the row that we had seen him go across to get to his seat. So he's just kind of stuck in the aisle while all of this is happening. And so as Alex is like screaming and talking about this, Carter comes up and it, Carter and his girlfriend Terry get up and they're like, knock it off. You're being an asshole. Carter's like yelling at Alex. And I think I think Alex like shoves Carter. And at that point, when the two of them start getting a little bit more physical and yelling at one another, the flight attendant's like, nope, I want all of you off. So Alex, Todd, Billy, Miss Luton, Carter, and Terry are all escorted off the plane because they're the ones in the aisle. And the flight attendant was like, everyone in the aisle, get off my plane. Then the French teacher Larry follows to see what's going on. The co-pilot comes out and says that he's not letting any of them back on the plane. And as they were being escorted off, George turns to Todd and says, go check on Alex. Like, because clearly something was going on with their friend. So he tells his brother to go check on him. Todd says, okay, he'll be right back. He goes out and the co-pilot's like, I'm not letting any of you guys back on. And as he's talking with Smith Luton, we see that Clear has also followed everyone off the plane, even though she was seated, she was at her seat. She, there was no reason she wasn't part of the scuffle, but she follows Alex and everyone off. Um, and then just like kind of hangs in the back. Miss Luton's able to convince the co-pilot to let either herself or Larry on the plane. Um, because you know, they've got a bunch of other kids that, you know, need a chaperone. And he says, you know, I'll let one of you go. One of you can get on the plane. And Larry originally tells her that she should go. She's like, no, you know French. You know the whole city. You go. I'll take the, the flight that's in a couple of hours. And, you know, we'll be there this afternoon. No big deal. Now that Larry has got back on the flight, Carter is trying to beat up Alex and Todd is trying to keep them apart along with security. Billy is super bummed that he didn't get to be let back on. He's like, I didn't fight anybody. Like I got stuck in the bathroom stall, like it, the door locked and I, you know, I wasn't able to get it out. And, you know, but hopefully the idea at this point is that he would be able to get on the flight here in a few hours. We see Todd go and get some ice chips for Alex and Alex is still super sweaty. He's trying to explain to them what happened. Miss Luton says he probably just fell asleep and had a nightmare. And Carter and Terry and Billy are watching the plane back away from the gate, get to the runway. Alex is now explaining to Miss Luton that he saw it take off. He saw out his window, he saw it blow up, he saw all of it happen. And Claire is sitting in like the row behind Alex at the gate area. Carter's super upset and he's like, we just lost half a day in Paris because he had a bad dream. And I love this line because Alex is like, the only trip you're taking is to the fucking hospital. And then he gets up and just tackles Carter. It's really funny. We see Billy by the window watching the plane take off, and he just looks bummed that he got kind of swept up in all of this, quite literally. And security now is, again, trying to keep Alex and Carter apart. We see from afar kind of where Carter and Alex are standing. Uh, you know, it's a camera shot that you can see the window, you know, the giant wall of glass out onto the tarmac. The plane has taken off, and then we see the plane explode, and it shatters the windows at the gate, and just before this happens, Alex tells Carter that he wishes Carter was on that plane. And then within seconds of him saying that and it explodes, everyone looks shocked. Carter looks terrified. Alex looks like he's going to throw up. And everyone's realizing that nobody could have survived that. Poor Todd just lost his brother because George told Todd to get off and go check on Alex. 
Now we see all of our survivors in a room. We see the FBI show up along with a couple of TSA agents. They're going to interview everyone individually, but before that happens, everyone is looking at Alex like he caused this, and he calls them on it. He's like, you know, you're all looking at me like I did this and I didn't do it. Like, it's not my fault. I didn't cause this. Miss Luton asks if there's any survivors and Alex just kind of looks at her blankly and says, how should I know? Clear says that Alex is not a witch. And then this is when the TSA agents and FBI people show up. Agent Weir and Agent Shrek from the FBI are telling everyone they're going to need to ask everyone a couple of questions and that any information that they have could prove invaluable to the rescue attempts. And they both stare at Alex. Now they're interrogating Alex. They want to know how he knew the plane was going to explode. And he says, I just had this weird feeling. They ask if he took any sedatives or if he took any other pills, narcotics, hallucinogenics, either before or on the plane. And Alex just says he saw it happen. He's like, I saw it happen. I saw the plane explode. And then they asked, did the weird feelings have anything to do with wishing that Carter was on that plane before it exploded? And he said, no. They want to know why he specifically said that. And he said, I didn't really think it was going to happen, but if that's the case, then why did you really get off the plane? That's what they want to know. They're like, if you didn't think it was going to happen, then why were you freaking out so bad? And like so much to where then you got escorted off the plane and you wished Carter was on it. It, it definitely doesn't look good for Alex. It definitely looks like he has a hand in it, even though we know as the audience, he did not. Now they're talking with Todd and he says, he looks just kind of broken, and he's like, George told me to get off to keep an eye on Alex, and so I did. And he clearly feels guilty because George stayed and ended up dying. Um, and I just, oh, I just feel for Todd. That I can't even imagine. Because clearly Todd and Alex and George's relationship, like, they saw Alex as a brother of theirs. And then, oh, it just it breaks my heart. We see them talking to Miss Luton now. She also feels guilty because she's the one who told Larry to get back on the plane. Um, and she's like, I should have been the one to go. That's what he said originally, but I, I argued with him. I told him he could go back. Um, and so she's clearly feeling a lot of guilt as well. And now they're talking with Clear, and they're like, nobody forced you off the plane, and you're not friends with any of the people who got off. So why did you get off the plane? And she's like, I can't really explain it, but I believed Alex when he said that the plane was going to explode. I just, I, I felt what he was feeling and i and i i believed him now we see everyone back in the original room that they were in alex is pacing and then everyone's parents and family arrive alex's parents just give him a big hug todd's parents come in and of course they're happy to see todd but heartbroken that george is gone billy's parents show up and the only people who don't show up for someone in the room is clear nobody arrived to see clear we see clear getting a ride home with alex and his parents they drop her off and it's like pouring down rain right now. And I kind of feel bad because like after everything that happened, she clearly has like a long driveway up to her house. They don't even drop her closer to her house. They drop her like at the end of the road. So she has to walk in the dark in the pouring rain up this long driveway to her house. And I'm like, y'all kind of pulled in the driveway and tried to get her a little closer. But I digress. She gets out. She says, thank you. And now back at Alex's house, he's just getting home. He goes up to his room. Everything's dark. We're kind of watching this from outside of his bedroom window as it's raining. No one seems to be talking to one another. And he gets into his room and he just kind of stands there and looks around. And then we just see Alex break down. He starts crying. His mother gives him a hug. His dad just kind of stands there. I mean, what like what are you supposed to say in that situation? Like, how do you, how do you, I mean, like, it's going to take a long time to process. You're not just going to process that in the course of, you know, an hour, two hours. 
It's just awful. Now we see Alex and his parents are in the living room watching the news. His parents are asleep on the couch, but Alex is awake in the recliner and he's watching the news on the plane crash. They're looking, trying to figure out what happened. And it says that the police are pessimistic about the idea of finding anyone alive. So as of now, all 287 passengers are presumed dead. Um, They talk about the class trip that was happening, and there are reports that several students were removed from the aircraft moments before it took off, but no one is talking about the specifics of why these people were removed. That's what the news is saying. We see the search and rescue people, you know, pulling plane parts out of the water, and there's lots of eyewitness accounts of the plane exploding, both of people at the airport and people in the surrounding areas. We see the thunder and lightning start up again, and it's very loud, startles Alex a little bit, and he gets up and goes over to the window, and he sees lightning strike down at the corner of his street that he lives on. Like, they live kind of right on the corner, and the lightning strikes right at that intersection. Now we're at a large memorial for the 39 students and the teacher that was lost. It's been 39 days since the plane crash. Everyone is there. Todd's there. All of their families are there. We see Carter and Terry and Claire. They have the statue that's been dedicated to the lives lost at the high school. We learn that Todd's parents don't want him talking to Alex. And, like, I know they're grieving, and that's fair, but I just feel so bad because, like, they clearly, like, it was a trio. It was the three of them, and... I think that that Alex and Todd kind of needed each other in that moment. And I think George would have wanted them to be together in that moment. Like, clearly, George was the one who told Todd to get off the plane. Uh, I think too much about the dynamics between, like, the relationships and the dynamics between characters sometimes. And that usually is always what makes me really sad when watching these things. Is I'm like, but that's not what George would have wanted. We see Miss Luton sobbing. And the entire time this memorial is happening, we see the FBI agents in the back. Everyone gets up as they go lay roses at the statue of the eagle that was constructed. Clear and Alex kind of share a little eye contact moment, and we see Billy get up and go lay down a rose, and then Alex gets up to go do so as well. We see Carter and Terry are also in line, and Alex gets in line behind Carter. We see Miss Luton get up, and while they're in line, Carter and Alex kind of get into another little argument, and Carter basically says that he's going to live his life to the fullest, and that Carter tells... And he also tells Alex that he doesn't owe him anything. Carter then says he's never going to die. I think it's a little bit dramatic. I mean, it's going to happen at some point. Billy goes up to talk to Alex, and he's actually trying to be, like, he's being nice to him. Um, And he says that he took his driver's test, and he got 70, so he passed. And then the instructor told Billy that you're going to die very young. So Billy basically wants Alex to confirm or deny if that's going to happen. And Alex is like, not here, Matt. Not, Not here. Not now. Not ever. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, that this was just a one-time freak thing. I'm not psychic. I'm not a witch. Like, and Billy's kind of like, oh, okay, well, if I ask out this girl, is she going to say yes or no? And Alex is like, I'm not psychic. That's not, this isn't what happened. Just go. Just get get out of here. Alex goes up to talk to Miss Luton, and she's like, don't talk to me. You scared the hell out of me. And we see Todd come up and stand next to Alex, and they kind of try to share a brief little chat. And you can tell Todd is very happy to be having the chat with, with Alex. You know, like I said, they're best friends, and they're both grieving the loss of someone very close to them. You know, someone that they, I'm sure Alex thought of George as a brother. You know, the way that him and Todd talk with one another, it was, it was the three of them, like I said. And you can see both of them while they're talking, like, relax a little bit just to be able to to share that closeness with each other. And I think it's really great. It's, it's a really nice little thing to catch. And Alex says, I know this might be hard for you to hear, but I miss you. And Todd says, I miss you too, but my father. But then Todd says, when he gets over this, 
we're going to we're going to go on a road trip. We're going to go catch a Yankees game, and you know we'll get back to our friendship. And Alex seems really excited about that, and as does Todd. Like they're both very excited for Todd's parents to kind of get through their initial grieving. You know the loss of their son, the excitement and happiness that they still have one of their children. Uh, you know I can't imagine how it is for his parents, but uh, you know they're both of them. You know, want to, to remain friends with one another, um, and they're they're hopeful for what the future could hold for that. Alex tells Todd to take care of himself, and their little private catch-up has ended. Claire comes up and tells Alex that because of you, I'm still alive, and she says thank you, and then she hands Alex a rose. Her picture gets taken by what I'm guessing is a local journalist or, you know, local newspaper, and then she quickly walks away. We now see Todd giving a speech, and he talks about, we never know how much time we're going to have left. We all think that we're going to have the day that we're, you know, that we have, and we're going to have tomorrow, but death could arrive the same afternoon. It could arrive this afternoon. You know, we think we have time. We think we know what's going to happen. We think we can make decisions for the future, but that's not always true. Not for everyone. One of those kind of live your life to the fullest every day because you never know what day is going to be your last type of speech. Now I'm guessing it's later that evening or maybe a few days later and we're at Todd's house. He goes into the bathroom and we there's a window open and it kind of blows some air in, very similar to what we saw at the beginning of the movie in Alex's room. Todd is in the bathroom and he's sitting on the toilet. We see water basically, you know, at the base of the toilet starts going onto the floor. It's leaking. Now we come back to Alex's house and we see all of these books on airplanes, air travel disasters. He's doing his own research to try and figure out possibly what happened to the flight and what happened with him seeing it. He looks really exhausted. He's drinking coffee. It looks like he's probably putting in a lot of hours in his free time doing this research. He has the fan going in his room and there's a newspaper he looks at the newspaper and there's an article about the memorial service for the students that was held yesterday. So this is like the next day. And there's that picture of Clear holding the rose just before like she hands it to Alex. He puts the newspaper back down and then he kind of takes a break from what he, you know, his research that he was doing. And he pulls out a penthouse magazine, uh, you know, kind of going to change the direction on what he's working on. Uh, he opens it up and he starts kind of thumbing through the pages and then we cut back to Todd who is going to shave in the bathroom. He ends up nicking himself on the, like kind of the first run of the blade on his face. And we also see more water coming into the bathroom from the bottom of the toilet. We also see a shadowy figure appear behind Todd and he honestly sees it in the mirror and he turns around, but you know, of course there's nothing there. And we see the water continuing throughout the scene to get closer to where Todd is. It's just kind of like encroaching on where he's standing. He decides to stop shaving and he takes tweezers and he's going to kind of tweeze some of the hairs that he has in his nose. He looks down at the radio and plugs it in. And then we hear the same John Denver song that was playing at the airport. And when he hears it, he immediately unplugs, unplugs it. And when he hears it, he immediately unplugs it. We cut back to Alex and he's still looking at the article and then he looks back at the newspaper. He decides he's going to put the magazine away. And then an owl appears in the window, kind of startles him. So he kind of like throws the magazine at the window. The window's closed, um, but it kind of startles the owl to make it go away. But the magazine ends up getting caught in the oscillating fan that he has and rips a couple of pages. One lands, a scrap of paper lands on his lap. And it's the title of an article, but it's ripped in such a way that it just says Todd. 
Alex looks concerned, and we cut back to Todd in the bathroom. Looks like he's decided now that he's going to shower or maybe take a bath, but there's a line in the bathroom where his mother has hung up, like, some tights, you know, like, like pantyhose, um, you know, more delicate things that you can't put in a washer, or, sorry, that you can't put it in a dryer, otherwise it will, it'll ruin it. Um, so he's taking those things down, and he slips on the water, and the cord that these tights and things were on ends up wrapping around his neck, and Todd is basically being strangled to death in the bathtub. He can't get himself up because his feet are now slippery as he's kind of flailing around in the tub. He knocks over some, like, shampoo and body wash bottles. Those get all over the floor of the bathtub, so now it's even more slippery, and he can't stand up, and we sadly see Todd die in the bathtub. And as soon as he stops moving, all of the water that has been leaking goes back into the toilet like it had never been on the floor in the first place. Now we see Alex walking down the block, and he's going, you know, kind of like a fast walk pace. He's definitely hustling a little bit. And when he gets to the end of the block that he's on, he's able to see where Todd's house is. He can see the lights outside the house, like the ambulance lights and things. He sees the coroner's car, and he asks one of the paramedics what happened to Todd. We see the FBI agents there, and Claire is also there, and she's kind of just, like, hiding behind this tree. And she tells Alex to get out of here, and then we see them taking out Todd's body in a body bag. So, of course, like, we can't see it's him, but his parents come out, so that's kind of the only logical explanation is that it would be Todd. And we just saw Todd die. His parents come out, and his dad goes up to Alex and says, you caused Alex so much guilt because George stayed on that plane that he took his own life. So his dad believes that Todd killed himself. Alex says, no, he wouldn't do that. He was okay. He said that we would be friends again when you got better. Why would he make plans with me if he was planning on killing himself? His parents leave. They're both crying. Neither of them want to talk to Alex anymore. Alex watches Todd's body get put into the back of the coroner's van, and the FBI agents are kind of just checking out Alex. They still think he's suspicious, but they don't know how or why he may be involved. Alex looks back at the tree that Claire was standing next to, but now she's gone. Now it's either the next day or a couple days later, and Alex is walking up to Claire's house. They talk as he's walking up, and she's working on some sort of art. She's clearly a very artsy person. She's got this beautiful German Shepherd dog, which I have two German Shepherds, so I always love seeing them in movies and things. The dog walks up to Alex, and he pets the dog for a minute. They talk about summer coming to an end, since, you know, leaves are starting to come off the trees. Fall is, you know, kind of making its way in. You can definitely feel it in the air, and if you listen closely to nature, it's kind of like being able to see the future. Alex wants to know why Claire was at Todd's last night, and Claire says, well, the FBI doesn't typically investigate teen suicides, so I just want to know what's going on. Claire talks about how Alex must be a suspect because... He said the plane was going to blow up just before it did, and his best friend just committed suicide, so something suspicious is definitely going on. They look at this piece of artwork, and Claire says that she modeled it after Alex, but it's not like the likeness of him. It's just like how he makes her feel. It's like a bunch of random pieces, but in this moment, Claire basically confesses her attraction to Alex and says that in the four years of high school, they never said anything to one another. They weren't friends, but she felt the same feelings that he felt when he got off the plane. She says something from that day is still with you. I know because I feel it. I feel it with you and I feel the feeling. Alex says that he never dealt with death before, so it could just be all in his head, but he feels it all around him. Alex then says that Todd was just the first of us and Claire wants to know if that's something that he's feeling or 
if it's something that he saw. And Alex says that he wishes he could see Todd one last time so that he could know maybe he would learn something if he saw Todd one last time. And Claire says, okay, so let's go see him. And now they're breaking into the mortuary. Claire and Alex break into the back room. They find Todd on a stretcher. They check him. He kind of looks like he's in the process of being embalmed. We get a good jump scare when Todd's arms kind of jump up, and then we see that Alex and Claire are not alone in the room. And this man tells him that they need to be quiet, and Alex asks the man why Todd's hand did that, and this man says it's the chemicals. And this is when we meet Tony Todd's character, William. He chats with them and says that he knows who Alex is, and Clear asks him questions about what's going on with the body, and he explains that it's cuticle lacerations from pulling at the wire that was around his neck. And Alex says if he was pulling at the wire, then he wasn't trying to kill himself. And William says, in death, there are no accidents, no coincidences, no mishaps, and no escapes. William says you have to realize that we're all just a mouse that a cat has by its tail. He says that everything is part of its dark design. And Alex says, if you figure out the design, can you cheat death? And William says, Alex, you've already done that by walking off the plane. Your friend's departure shows that death has a new design for all of you. He tells them that they have to figure out how and when death is coming back for them. William's overall message is that you don't want to fuck with death. If you cheat him too many times, you're going to make him angry. That's one person you're never going to get away from is the Grim Reaper. They apologize for breaking in, and William says no harm, no foul, and Claire and Alex leave. As they leave, William points to them and says, I'll see you soon, which is just absolutely phenomenal. Tony Todd is such a good actor, and I just love all of his horror roles. Now we see Clear and Alex getting coffee. Alex is saying, how do we figure out the design? And Clear says, how do you know we haven't set anything in motion just by sitting here? Having coffee, crossing the street, you know, might be 40 years from now, 10 years from now, how are we going to know the design? And then he says, we just need to be open to the signs it's willing to show us. He tells Clear about the piece of paper that said Todd that landed in his lap. And Clear wants to know if she saw it, like how she's on the plane. And he's like, no, but I felt something. And... The message, you know, that piece of paper was clearly hinting at the design. And Claire says that you can see death omens anywhere if you look hard enough. And Alex says that what if the people that got off the plane, Terry, Carter, Billy, Miss Luton, Todd, we were never supposed to get off that plane. We fucked up the design and now we're going to die now, not later, unless we find the patterns and we cheated again. Now we see Carter and Terry driving by. Carter sees Alex and Clear sitting at the coffee shop and he passes them and then he just can't bring himself to keep driving. And so he turns around in the middle of the road. He almost runs over Billy, who's on his bicycle, almost causes a car accident because he just can't leave Alex alone and wants to yell at him some more. Carter gets out of the car and we see Miss Luton walking out of the coffee shop. Billy then pulls up on his bike and they're kind of having this little reunion outside of the coffee shop. We find out Miss Luton is moving because she's having a hard time in town. Terry yells at Alex and Carter and says, you know, we lived, they died, get over it. I'm not going to let this plane crash be the most important thing in my life. She punches Carter on the arm and says that she's moving on and she's going to walk away. She goes to cross the street and then is this so, this, this, I remember watching this scene for the first time and it like totally shocked me. Terry says, go ahead and keep beating the shit out of Alex every time you see him, but if that's what you're going to do, you can just drop fucking dead. She turns around, goes to cross the street, and immediately is hit by a bus in front of everyone. Everyone there is splattered with blood. Ms. Luton looks like she's going to be sick. Alex looks very sad, and now we see him at home drinking the Alka-Seltzer, like I was talking about in the fun facts. Which, while it seems out of place, it definitely is a nice little recovery thing, because when I first watched this, I was 
shocked when she got hit by that butt. Like, I was oh, so not ready. It's so good. Now we see Clear calling Alex, and he refuses to get on the phone. His dad answers and, like, tries to give it to him, and Alex just sits there, doesn't say anything. So his dad lies and says that Alex is in the shower and that, you know, he'll have him call Clear back. They hang up, and Alex's dad says, she's concerned about you, I'm concerned about you. And he's like, why don't you just talk to her or me? And Alex is clearly just shut down at this point. And then Alex tells his dad that there's just something that I need to understand before I can talk about it. His dad nods, and they go back to watching TV. They're talking about the plane crash again, and they basically have a possible theory about what caused the explosion. One of the electrical connectors to a pump may have leaked combustible fluids, and that a spark basically set off the whole thing, and it proceeded to the fuel pump, which would have set off a large explosion like what we saw in Alex's premonition. Now we see Alex at his computer mapping out what they showed on TV. They kind of had like an interior of the plane and the seats and, you know, where the leak was and how it was connected to everything. And so he's drawing everything out to figure out where everyone was seated in relation to how things exploded. And he realizes that he thinks he's figured out the pattern of what the design was supposed to be. He realizes that they're dying in the order that they would have died. So it was Todd and then Terry and then it would have been Miss Luton. So he knows Miss Luton is supposed to be next. We cut to Miss Luton's house. She's on the phone, and we're not sure who she's talking to, but she's feeling guilty because she told Larry to get back on the plane. She says that everything reminds her of that day, and she just needs to get out of town. She's packing up her house, getting ready to move. She's crying, and she's just clearly having a hard time. And she's like, I've lived here my whole life, and everywhere I look used to be great memories, and now all I see is Larry and those kids. She looks out her front window, and she sees Alex outside. She hangs up the phone and then calls the FBI agent's and says that Alex is creeping around out front of her house. He does look pretty creepy, I'm not going to lie. We cut to Alex in front of her house, and he goes up to her car. He's kind of expecting it, looking at the tires. He's looking at her gas cap, all of that stuff. And in this moment, we see the FBI agents pull up, and they want to know what Alex is doing. And he says he's just making sure that her car is safe. But that, you know, it looks like he's just being sketchy. They take him in for questioning because he does look guilty and suspicious. And now we see Miss Luton standing back at her window and she sees them put Alex in the car and take him away. As Miss Luton walks away from the window, there is a draft that we saw in Alex's room and then again in the bathroom with Todd. And it's now in Miss Luton's house. We see Alex being interrogated and he tells the FBI agents that Miss Luton's next because there's a pattern that's occurring. And they're like, oh, great pattern. You noticed that too, huh? And they don't seem happy that Alex is not being forthcoming with the information that he clearly has. We cut back to Miss Luton, and she's still packing. She's cleaning out one of her closets, and she finds an old record that I guess it was her mom's favorite. And she shuts the closet door and goes to put the record on while she continues to clean and pack. We get a close-up of the record, and we see that it's Rocky Mountain High by John Denver. They ask if Alex saw Miss Luton's death in another one of his visions. And he says, you know, I never asked for any of this to happen. And you guys can sit here in your chairs and make fun of me, whatever, it's fine. But I saved six lives on that plane, six lives. And everyone in my entire school thinks I'm a freak. And I'm not suffering from post-traumatic stress. I don't have a narcissistic personality complex. I'm not going Dahmer on you guys. This is just is. There's a pattern for all of us. There's a pattern for you. There's a pattern for you. There's designs for everyone, and I don't know how yet, but I'm going to break this one like I broke the first one. We cut back to Miss Luton in her kitchen, putting on the tea kettle, 
and we kind of see this dark shadowy entity in the reflection on the tea kettle behind her, like we saw in the mirror in Todd's bathroom before he passed. We keep getting a view of her butcher block with like all the knives in it, and she tosses this tea towel over the butcher block as she's cleaning things up. She puts the kettle on the stove. She's got a gas stove, so when she flicks on the burner, it lights and then goes out, so she has to strike a match to relight it, which is pretty typical, and it happens sometimes, but we get that eerie kind of music as this is playing. She puts the match next to the burner. Everything lights normal, just like it's supposed to. We see Alex continue to be interrogated, and he says that he's still under suspicion from the plane explosion, but they know that he didn't blow up the plane. Now they're just worried because Todd died, and then Terry, and now Miss Luton. You know, you're saying that she's next, and all of these deaths are connected to you. And they want him to explain this, and he says that he can't. He's just trying to figure out the pattern. And they say, okay, fine, get out of here, just go. He says thank you, and he leaves. When Alex leaves, Shrek turns to Ren and says, like, that kid gives me the creeps. And then Ren goes, you know, there are times when you give me the creeps. It's like, you guys are not taking this seriously. But, I mean, who would in a situation like this? We cut back to Miss Luton. She's pouring her tea. And when she looks at the mug that she poured, it was a mug from the high school that she works at. And it, like, startles her a bit. She tells herself to get a hold of herself. It's just a mug. And soon she's going to be out of here. She goes to the freezer, grabs some vodka, and puts that in the mug instead. And as she's filling up the mug, we see that it cracks a little bit. Um, So a little bit of vodka leaks out on the counter. As she picks it up and walks, it's dripping a little bit on the floor. She walks over to her computer and desk to pack that up. She leans over the desk and some vodka drips into her computer. And then we see her wrapping some things on her desk. We pan over the top of the computer and we see inside that the vodka is dripping down to everything inside the computer, causing it to short circuit. Miss Luton hears what's going on, and when she looks at the computer, it's starting to lightly smoke. She leans in to examine it, and then it kind of blows up, like the screen shatters, and she gets a piece of glass in her throat. She slips on, you know, the blood from her neck and bumps into the record player. We see Alex walking down the road, and he passes by this man raking what looks like a pile of leaves, and it looks like the leaves are on fire. But I think what this actually is is a premonition of a fire. I don't think the leaves were actually on fire. Some of the embers go to Alex and he kind of pushes them out of the way and we cut back to Miss Luton's house and the fire that has started at the computer has found the trail of vodka that has led back to the kitchen and is catching Miss Luton's house on fire. It makes its way to the stove and the oven explodes. The kitchen catches fire very badly. Alex has now shown up at her house. Miss Luton is on the ground bleeding. She reaches up to grab the tea towel that she had put over the butcher block and when she reaches it and pulls on it, The knives fall out and one goes directly into her abdomen. At this point, Alex has arrived. He goes inside and he sees her on the ground. He tells her that he's going to help her. And he looks like he's getting ready to pull the knife out. And as he's getting ready to do it, the stove kind of has another small little explosion. And it causes the chair next to them to fall and push the knife deeper into Miss Luton even more, causing her to die. Alex moves the chair and then he pulls the knife out of her body. But it's too little too late and he's now holding a bloody knife. He drops the knife and then he runs from the house. We can see there's a bloody shoe print next to her body and he's running out of the house. Billy is riding by on his bike and stops to say, he's like, oh, hey, Alex. And Alex jumps into the front yard and the entire house explodes. Alex gets up and just takes off. He leaves, leaves Billy standing there looking shocked and terrified. And now the FBI is talking with Clear and she's saying that she doesn't know where Alex is. They tell her that if he does reach out, that she should give them a call 
and they look at her artwork, they tell her it's interesting, she doesn't seem super happy to be talking to them. Now it's nighttime, and Billy is arriving at the statue by the high school that they built, you know, the memorial statue, and we see Carter pull up, and he's pulling out a pocket knife um, to carve Terry's name into the statue, because she has now passed. Claire is walking up to them, and Carter's upset because he's not able to carve her name like the marble's too thick. Carter wants to know why Claire called them there, and she says that you're going to drive me over to see Alex. And he's like, what? Like, why would I do that? And she says, because he knows which one of us is next. Now we see them driving. Billy's in the back seat, Carter's driving, and Claire's in the passenger seat. They arrive at a state park, and Claire gets out to go look for Alex, and she has the guys continue driving like a mile down the road to kind of the other end of the park so they can try and find Alex. Claire seems to find him very quickly, and he's sitting on the beach just kind of reminiscing, feeling guilty about what happened. He's like, do you think they're up there fine and happy and okay? And Claire sits on the beach with him, and they talk. And she tells Alex that when she was 10, her dad was murdered at a 7-Eleven by a robber. And her mom kind of went into a depression and then started dating this guy. The guy didn't want a kid, so then her mom didn't want her anymore. And she doesn't really have a family. Claire gets a little bit upset and says that if this was the design for my father and for my family, then fuck death. She said that place has to exist where her dad is safe and where he doesn't need to stop for cigarettes or her parents are happy and still together and have no idea about this life and this version of things. And she's like, that's where our friends are now, where everyone gets a second chance. Now we see them driving again. Alex and Claire are in the back seat and Billy is now in the passenger seat. They're going to take Alex to Claire's dad's cabin out in the woods because the police are looking in to Alex um, as a connection to the murders. He's trying to explain to them that he didn't do it. He didn't kill Miss Luton. And Carter's like, it doesn't matter if you did or not, but you knew she was going to be next. Everything in the car gets silent and Alex says, yes. Everyone looks panicked and Carter says, okay. So then out of everyone in this car, who's next? Billy and Carter start figuring out Billy and Carter kind of start arguing and basically saying that it's both of them. He's like, no, it's me. That's why he's not saying anything. And Carter's like, no, obviously it's me. And they're like kind of arguing about who's going to be next. And Alex is like, it's not going to make it any easier if you know. It's just going to make it harder. And Carter says, you don't have control of my life. You let me decide. And Alex is like, it doesn't matter who's next. We're all on the same list. Things get quiet. And then Carter says, what the fuck does it matter if I'm going to die anyway? And then he starts speeding up runs through a stop sign he's swerving in and out of traffic everyone in the car is terrified and telling him to stop he runs another stop sign and they're yelling at him to stop the car alex looks down and sees that his seatbelt is ripped so it's not going to help him in the event of a car crash carter is saying he's going to run the next red light and when alex looks up he sees the red light that carter runs he looks back down at his seatbelt and it's not ripped anymore they continue arguing, and Carter finally stops the car, but he stops it on train tracks. Everyone gets out of the car, and Carter basically is going to sit there and let the train hit him. He's like, if it's my time, it's my time. As the train gets closer, he decides that it's not his time. He goes to drive away, but he can't. The car won't go anywhere. It won't turn on. He can't get his seatbelt off. He can't get the door open. Yeah, it looks like it actually might be his time. We see the dark, like, kind of entity whatever it is go over the hood of his car and then he is locked in the doors lock on him he can't get a seatbelt undone alex goes under the little like you know arm barricade that comes down to like tell you the train's coming and thankfully carter's window is open so he reaches down he's trying to pull carter out 
Literally what seems like the last second, Alex is able to pull Carter out of the car because Sarger's seatbelt breaks, kind of like what Alex had seen in the back seat. Everyone is safe. They fall to the side of the road as the train passes. Of course, the car gets fucked up. Clear hugs Alex, and he's telling Clear that he saw the belt and that it broke, and he was able to, like, that was what he was seeing. Billy stands up and is telling everyone that he's going to stay the fuck away from them, and he's going to stay safe because he's not gonna be around them anymore and he's like if carter's next i'm staying away from him and as he's yelling at them we see this like piece of metal lying on the train tracks it looks like it's a piece of carter's car the train picks it up you know kind of the wind and you know everything from under the train picks up this piece of metal and it flies and decapitates billy clear and carter are freaking out and alex seems really excited he's like i fucking knew it i saw the seatbelt. i saved you you should be dead but it skipped you because i saved you and then it went to billy because he was next in line he was the next person in the design he says if he intervenes he can cheat the design clear says that they need to get him to the cabin um and then alex says that he's the one who's supposed to be next and then clear now we see the exterior of the cabin in the woods and this must be you know, the cabin that belonged to Claire's father. We jump inside the cabin and we see that Alex is putting together what looks like a home alone trap, but what they're actually doing is covering anything sharp, making sure that everything is secure so nothing bad can happen. So basically Alex is taking duct tape and wine corks and covering up like any nails on the wall or anything and putting duct tape over bookcases, that sort of stuff so nothing can fall on him or fly at him. And he has this little oil lamp that's sitting on a bowl and like another bowl like that bowl that is sitting on is in a bigger bowl of water so that if it catches fire it should put a shelf out because of that other bowl of water we see him put on gloves and then he opens up what looks like a little can of tuna fish or chicken or something like that he has his little dinner he looks kind of like a mess like he looks exhausted probably has not slept whatever he's eating does not appear to taste that good and then we cut to wind blowing into the cabin much like it did in his room like we've seen throughout the movie when death is coming there's this kind of you know wind that starts like we've seen we see a bag in the room fall over and knocks into some fishing poles the fishing poles fall start opening this closet door that alex had forgot to secure he runs to make sure that it stays shut and we see this knife or saw some kind of blade go through the door and almost impale him but thankfully it didn't he gets up and starts talking to death and he's like i beat you i got this whole cabin rigged to beat you i know it's not going to be forever but i definitely know that i can beat you now we cut to clear and she is in her house there's thunder and lightning happening outside and she peeks out her window to see the fbi agents in the car at the end of the driveway she's walking through her house and looks at a picture of her and her father on the front steps of the cabin we cut to the fbi agents and they're basically on a little stakeout to see if alex is going to arrive clear then comes out to the car and says alex is in danger and he is more in danger by himself she wants to go there and she tells the fbi agents that they can come and they say nope we can go get him if you tell us where he is we'll bring him in and he'll be in protective custody and you can wait here at home we cut back to alex and he is what looks like getting ready to start a fire at the cabin he sees a newspaper that talks about miss luton's death and krista and blake's death and it looks like krista and blake's parents are going to start a scholarship fund and this is when alex realizes that he changed seats that wasn't actually supposed to be his seat that was either krista or blake's seat next and he was all the way in the back. So it's not him that's next in the design. It's actually clear because she was up closer in the plane in the original design. We cut to clear at her house and she's looking out the window. The thunder strikes a pole outside of her house and causes the electrical lines to go crazy. Her poor dog is out in the backyard, like freaking out. And I would do the same thing clear does. She immediately goes outside to save the dog. 
Alex is getting ready to leave the cabin, and as he's running out, the FBI is showing up along with the local police. He runs, instead of into the woods, to the water, I'm guessing a lake, and gets in a canoe and starts canoeing across the lake. Claire goes outside, and the dog is barking, freaking out. She is able to get the dog off of the leash. She tells him to run. Alex has arrived on clears side of the lake like where her house is and is running through the woods to get to her place he gets to a road area and the fbi agents and the police have caught up to him they stop their cars get out and they're following him through the woods they're calling for him they're saying we're we're trying to help you but he's just powering through clear gets outside she's almost taken out by this like clothing rack that she had in her backyard as she's trying to save the dog the dog runs away Um, The electrical line is still freaking out. We see Alex trip and fall very closely, impales his face on a tree branch, but doesn't. Um, There's also a pool in Claire's backyard, and it breaks open, and then, of course, the electrical line hits the water. The entirety of the backyard is electrically charged. We see the dog run away. We see Claire jump on this, like, lattice on the side of her house and is able to get off the ground, and she climbs the lattice up to, like, the second-story roof area. Alex is continuing on his run through the woods and a tree in front of him is struck by lightning and he and like this tree falls on top of him and he's having a hard time getting up and he's face down in this puddle of water because it had been raining. The FBI agents can't see him anymore, of course, because this tree fell on him. We cut back to clear and she's now climbing the lattice, like I said, so she can get to that roof area. She climbs in to her house, uh, almost falling off the roof, but she's able to pull herself up. And right about this time, Alex is able to get out from under the tree and does not end up drowning. Claire has finally made it on the roof, breaks a window, so like I said, she can make it into her bedroom. She makes it in just in time, and then the electrical line hits the house, and all of the lights and anything electrical in the house starts bursting. She gets out of the house and goes into the garage so she can get in her car, but she's unable to operate the automatic garage door opener, so she just turns on the car, throws it in reverse, and hits the gas. As she backs out the electric door opener, uh, you know, like that that frame part on the top falls um, and kind of traps her car. Alex is finally arriving at the house. She's still trying to back up, but again, she isn't super successful. She's like kind of, she's kind of stuck basically. She's finally able to get the car backed out. However, the electrical line hits her car and the car stops. Alex shows up and tells her to stay there, not to move. He says, don't touch anything. You're grounded by the tires. But she's kind of freaking out, which is valid. And he originally takes the shovel to try and, you know, push away the electrical line that's on her car, but it's not working. The process of messing with the shovel, this electrical line basically throws the shovel from his hands and knocks it over an air tank in her garage. This air tank goes under Claire's car, and then a fire starts, and basically her car is going to explode. Alex realizes that the only way to save her is if he grabs this charged electrical line. He tells her that she knows what to do. She begs him not to do it. And he says, when I do this, it'll skip over you, and it's the only way we can cheat death again. And he says, Claire, I'm not going to let this happen to both of us. You know what to do. I'll always be with you. It's a very dramatic scene, and we get this dramatic music. She looks like she's going to cry, and he goes to the front of her car, grabs the electrical line, and she says no, like right at that moment. The FBI is also arriving at that moment. They're yelling at him to get away from the car. Claire is still saying no, but he leans down, grabs the line, and she jumps out of the car. He gets thrown back, and then the car explodes. We see Alex on the floor of the garage, and the FBI agents run up to clear, but she's much faster, and she gets up and she runs right to Alex. 
His hands are super, super badly burned. And she's like, you can't do this to me. She's trying to get him to wake up. The FBI agents are trying to get her away from him so that they can check him out. They start trying to do CPR. We get a white screen for a few seconds, and then we're on a jet bridge. We don't see any people. We don't see anything. And then we see that it's six months later. It's a flight that has arrived in France, and Carter and Clear have landed in France along with Alex. They finally made the trip, the three of them. Having gone together, they're having dinner at this little outdoor cafe. They're talking about their friends who couldn't make it, and they're happy to be there together. And Carter's like, I can't, I can't believe it. You know, if you would have told me six months ago that I'd be here with you, um, I just I wouldn't believe it, but I'm glad that we made it. Alex then starts talking about the design again, and they just want him to drop it. They're like, it's done. It's over. We're here. Let's just stop. Let's stop talking about it. Then we hear a local guitar busker start playing the John Denver song, Rocky Mountain High. Alex seems to be the only one to clock this, and then Alex gets worried because that breeze shows up, and he thinks that he's still next, but he doesn't tell them this, but you can definitely tell he's freaked out, and he gets up. He's like, I'm gonna meet you guys back at the hotel. I'll see you later, and Claire's like, no, I'll come with you. Like, it's fine, and he's like, no, it's okay, and as he gets up to leave, Claire sees a bus in, like, a like a reflection of a bus in a window, much like we had seen when before Terry gets hit by the bus. Um, she calls out to Alex before he goes to cross the road, and he turns around and thankfully doesn't get hit by the bus, but the bus driver drives into this, like, construction area. It's a whole, like, domino effect, basically. And the sign above where they're having dinner, the neon sign, falls, and it's like a huge pendulum, basically. And as it's you know, making its way toward Alex, Carter jumps and tackles Alex out of the way at the last second and saves him. Alex is lying on the ground and Carter gets up and is like, I told you you were next. And Alex tells Carter, then it just skipped me. And Carter's like, well, then who's next if it skipped you? And we see the sign swinging back down on its way to Carter. And just before it goes to hit Carter, the screen goes black and the film ends. I really enjoy the Final Destination franchise. Uh, I can't believe that this had such a low critic score. I feel like it was such a kind of groundbreakingly interesting movie for for like a 2000s horror film. Um, I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Like I said, this is week four of four for my four weeks on, two weeks off. We've got a really fun lineup for May. I'm really excited to get into those. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, feel free to give it a like, a follow, um, rate wherever you listen. Would really appreciate it. If you'd like to see what I'm getting up to on social media, you can follow the podcast at M Murder Movies on Instagram and Twitter. So that's M as in Massacre Murder Movies on Instagram and Twitter. I cannot wait to come back. Uh, I like having the two weeks off to be able to prep and plan and, uh, you know, make sure that I'm getting things out on time. It was really nice to have that two weeks, you know, getting ready to go on vacation so I didn't have to do anything while I was on vacation for the podcast. Um, I did edit Texas Chainsaw in the Denver airport, like, and that was it. I I finished editing it and, you know, scheduled it to post. Um, But that was pretty much all I did kind of on vacation time. So that was really nice. Um, So yeah, very excited to get into all of the fun May episodes that we have. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and I will see you in the next one. Remember to stay safe and stay spooky.